Father, we ask that you would give us peace where all of life is pulling at us. That you would quiet us and speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. And will you stand with me as we read? Mark, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. A crowd has gathered around Jesus and his disciples. And where this is where our text picks up. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peter, James, and John are invited by Jesus to ascend a high mountain with him. Jesus leads the way up. Mark doesn't tell us what they talked about as they ascended. Perhaps it was silence. Jesus had given this cryptic pronouncement in the presence of the disciples and this crowd that some standing there would not taste death until they had seen the kingdom of God come with power. And this is what generations of Israelites had been waiting on. Under the thumb of foreign oppression for too long, Rome being the current occupying force, the expectation was that with the Messiah, God would usher in His kingdom, overthrow those who were in charge, and restore His kingdom and His people to the prominence of the past. Peter has already confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, so one checkbox is checked. Could this be the beginning of the second? Could Jesus be inviting them up the mountain to begin this revolution? Would this be where the kingdom of God would begin its conquering march to the, to the throne? Would God's armies of angels, like they did for Elisha, descend in horses and chariots to war on behalf of God's people for their deliverance? 
Surely Peter, James, and John had made the connection. It was no accident that they were invited up this high mountain six days after Jesus' pronouncement about the kingdom. A direct echo from Moses' six-day preparation before his ascent to meet with God on a high mountain, Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24, and what a powerful encounter that was. Would this one be similar? They reached the pinnacle, and over and above anything they could have possibly imagined, they are witnesses to a transcendent experience. In a moment, Jesus is transformed, metamorpho, the word in the Greek where we get our word metamorphosis, clothed in splendor, glory, and light. Verse 3 says that Jesus, of Jesus, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And not just Jesus, but at His right and His left are Moses and Elijah speaking with Him. And these two were important figures, and they had great significance. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, it ends in chapter 4. And in verses 4 and 5, it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, not to get into the intricacies of these two verses and surrounding context, but broadly speaking, the reason these are the last two names mentioned at the end of the Old Testament is because they were the two figures, Elijah and a prophet like Moses. They were the two figures expected before God's reckoning where He would judge sin and evil, redeem His people, and usher in his kingdom. Elijah would appear, Moses would appear, a prophet like Moses would appear, and all of that would intersect with the person and work of the Messiah. That's how the Old Testament ends. For our text's purposes in Mark, that these two figures, Moses and Elijah, are the ones whom appear and stand with Jesus, seemingly give strong credence that this is indeed the kingdom coming with power moment, a kairos moment, an appointed time, a marker in God's eschatology. And to go even further towards that expectation of a prophet like Moses, the Moses parallels continue. Yes, there's the six-day parallel. Moses waits six days before ascending Mount Sinai. Jesus waits six days after His statement about the kingdom. Moses ascends Mount Sinai. Jesus ascends a high mountain. There is an element of luminescence. When Moses descends from Mount Sinai in God's presence, his face is shining. Jesus, his whole person, is clothed in, in, clothed in light and glory. It's radiating. And just as the glory of the Lord dwelled over Mount Sinai, where God spoke to Moses, so too here in verse 7, the glory of the Lord overshadows this mountain in a cloud for God to speak. But before that, Peter, unable to contain himself, starts talking before God can get a word in. And in verse 5, it says, Rabbi, oh, it is good that we're here. 
Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Perhaps he wanted to provide a place of shelter for the preparations before they were to go conquer. I mean, all the connections are there. You can't blame Peter because if, you've, if you're him, you've put it all together. Jesus said, some will not taste death until the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the very thing we've been waiting on, to be delivered by God from this foreign, oppressive Roman rule, and for his kingdom to instead be the rule in place. Jesus waits six days, takes us up a high mountain. That's that's pretty similar to Moses. He's transfigured. There's a divine luminescence to it all. That's very similar to Moses. Come to think of it, we've been expecting a prophet like Moses, and this whole experience sure seems to be as close as you can get to a prophet like Moses. Even more so, in case that was lost on us, Moses is there with him. And the other figure we've waited on, Elijah, guess who else is with Jesus? Elijah. So, we've got a pronouncement from God that his kingdom is coming from the mouth of Jesus, who's God's anointed Messiah. He's transformed, clothed with glory and splendor, flanked by Moses and Elijah, and a cloud is forming overhead. This has to be the presence of God, and he surely is going to confirm to us what all is happening. I actually, God, I've got it. You don't even have to worry about it. You don't have to say anything because I've already made the connections. I'll take it from here. God does finally get a word in, and what is it? You've got it, Peter. You're right. I don't know why I showed up. I should have just left it to you. You figured it all out. No, verse 7, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus hasn't said anything so far. And nor does he say anything immediately afterwards. Why listen to him? Wouldn't, if it said, this is my beloved son, look at him, wouldn't that make more sense? The spectacle in all of this has been in what is seen. There's been no spectacle. There's been no transcendent experience in what's been heard. Why Listen to him. Here's the genius of Mark. It's the genius of Jesus. Listen to him. It refers back to what Jesus said before their ascent up the mountain. Back even before his pronouncement about the kingdom. And what was that? In chapter 8, verse 31... Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He repeats that very same line in chapter 9, verse 31. So chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31. How's that for some symmetry? For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Listen to him. What in the world does that have to do with the transfiguration? Why would Jesus do what he did for God to have then said what he said? What's the connection? 
the Bible has a word for this. In the Greek, it's apocalypse. Our word is revelation. Pick up a Greek New Testament, go to the last book in the Bible, and that last book is the apocalypse, what we know as the book of Revelation. And much more than having to do with any sort of future predicting, what the word signifies is an unveiling, a disclosure of sorts, a glimpse behind the veneer of perceived reality to what is truly going on. Jesus' transfiguration is an apocalypse. It is a revelation on a mountain, an unveiling, revealing the truth behind His words concerning His own suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. With the point being that these two events, His way of suffering and weakness and rejection and death, And resurrection, yes, the disciples never seem to grasp that point, but that way of suffering and His intrinsic divine power, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Back up to Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. This is in chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And Peter gets it right that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. But then Jesus starts elaborating on what that's going to mean. You just need to know, you're right, I am the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to be rejected, suffer, be killed, and after three days, rise. And Peter's response to that, thanks Jesus, Woo, that sounds tough. Nope. In verse 32, Peter rebukes Jesus. It's almost an impressive amount of courage. And why? Why would he rebuke Jesus over that? Because that's not what the Messiah does. The Messiah is powerful. The Messiah is God's anointed Lord. He conquers. He's enthroned victorious. He doesn't get rejected. He doesn't suffer. And he sure doesn't die under the very regime he's supposed to be overthrowing. That's not power. That's not the Messiah. That's weakness. That's losing Jesus' response in verse 33, he rebukes Peter. You don't get it, Peter. You don't get it. The way to the cross, the way of suffering, rejection, death, and yes, resurrection, but those ways, they are not empty of power. Thus, Jesus is taking them up on the mountain to reveal who He really is. That I am doing this, Peter, as the transcendent, transfigured one infuses that way with power. It's easy to think of Jesus' transfiguration as an event independent of everything else. Jesus just sort of taking his disciples up. I just want to show you how godly I really am. Ooh, look at me. See how bright I am? It does have significance on its own. But what it really is, is revealing a profound, albeit mysterious, clarity that not only does perceived weakness not mutually exclude the presence of divine power, but even more so, to take it one step further, the way of perceived weakness, suffering, death, 
rejection is the precise way in which all of this divine power is going to be revealed. The divine, glorious, robed in splendor, luminous, transcendent, powerful Jesus is the same Jesus who's going to die on a cross. Yes, to ultimately be raised to a new life, but via the cross. And so when Jesus says, some of you standing here will not taste death until the kingdom of God has come with power, it would have been easy for Peter, James, and John to go, Woo, yeah, because what he was talking about was his transfiguration. Sort of. What he's really talking about, Mark speaking uh, for Jesus, where the kingdom of God will truly come with power is on a cross, The expectations were not wrong. That's not what was wrong about it. There is indeed a divine victory over the power and principalities of this world. The Messiah is indeed enthroned as Lord. The kingdom of God is indeed unleashed upon the world, breaking into reality, establishing a new community. But the way all of that happens is not through the absence of struggle and suffering, but through struggle and suffering. The paradox in this is that the worst thing that happened to Jesus is the best thing that happened to the world. If your head is spinning a bit, that's okay, that's natural. This was, and it still is, a complete inversion of the way we think about Jesus' power and work in this world, especially for our own lives. Jesus, in his person, is embodying what appears to be a paradox, power and weakness, glory and humiliation, victory and sacrifice. Yet paradox or not, it is his way. And if it is his way, it's your way. Right after Jesus' rebuke of Peter comes his words that we're familiar with. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus' words here have a lifetime's worth of reflection. But among other aspects which it points to, it shows that as we follow in the way of Jesus, as we encounter rejection, suffering, weakness, those are not empty of His power. And if you will lean into this paradox more, far from some sort of downer, oh man, If I follow Jesus, I have to take up my cross. I have to lose my life. No, far from some sort of downer. The more you lean into this, the more it will dissolve as a paradox and reveal itself to be a powerful healing balm, a source of life-changing hope when all other hope seems lost. Because if it's not true, if Jesus doesn't know weakness and pain, 
If His power is not present in it, then what hope do we have? Life is full of pain. Don't we know that? Past the facade of our smiles and how you doing goods, past all of that, deep down in our souls, are we not well acquainted with weakness, with rejection, with moments and memories of helplessness, with grief, pain, with wounds? So is our Savior. Edward Shalito, he was a minister in the Church of England during World War I, and he wrote a poem called Jesus of the Scars. You can imagine the context he was writing this in, watching his country just be decimated. But here's the last verse of that poem, Jesus of the Scars. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. We are wont to think that if Jesus is going to work powerfully in my life, it's going to be in moments of great joy and happiness and victory in the mountaintops of life. But perhaps where Jesus works most powerfully is where you least expect Him to. In your weakness, in your pain, in your wounds. Peter's logic sounds familiar to our own when Jesus told him what it meant to be the Messiah. But that can't be true. Jesus, the Messiah, the glorious incarnation of God, he doesn't work in these. He's not there. He's not in this places of my life. I don't know what's there, but Jesus certainly isn't. My weakness, my suffering, my rejection, there's no power in that. It's just emptiness, vacuous, meaningless loss. If that sounds similar to your own rationale, will you follow Jesus' invitation today to a sacred place? Maybe it's not a mountain. Maybe it's your room. Maybe it's a chair on your porch. A closet where you pray. Maybe it's where you're sitting right now. Will you quiet yourself to witness Him unveil and reveal His power in your weakness? To reveal divine forgiveness where you've not been able to give it to yourself, to someone else? To reveal divine salvation where it is not there. To reveal divine strength where all of yours has been spent. 
to reveal divine reconciliation between a family member, between a friend, where the conflict has seemed insurmountable. To reveal divine joy in a place of thick darkness. To reveal divine deliverance from a place of deep shame. To hear His words to you, I've never stopped loving you. I've never stopped loving you. Whatever it is Jesus is to reveal, the only way it will happen is if you will place yourself before Him, God's beloved Son, and listen to Him.